welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Right around this time, I heard the term gray area drinking via a guest that was on a podcast. And when I was walking my dog and I heard this podcast interview, I literally like stopped in the middle of the street. It was a, it was a warm summer morning, like 7.30 in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I was. I never identified as an alcoholic. I was a gray area drinker. So I came home. It was like the fire was just burning inside me. I came home and I researched everything I could on gray area drinking and there wasn't a lot out there. And I thought, if I could share what gray area drinking is with more people, I'll get them to raise their hand before they get into a deeper addiction. Did you hear the enthusiasm in the voice of this week's guest, Carrie Schweer? You'll be hearing a lot of the same excitement and joy, the same sense of fulfillment and significance over the next several weeks from the guests we've lined up for our new series, Second Act Significance. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Carrie kicks off our series recounting how at age seven, she vividly remembers thinking, is this all there is to life? before embarking on a journey that had its share of soul-crushing crucibles, even as she found success in each of her multiple career stops. But when she grew concerned enough about her gray area drinking, her research into the subject and passion for helping others overcome it launched a second act she is pursuing with absolute gusto as a life coach who helps her clients overcome the gray areas in all aspects of their lives from relationships to careers to how they think and talk about themselves. Carrie Schweer has found second act significance, and you can too. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, and you know, it'd be so fun to just hear more about Grey Tonic and uh, Question the Drink. Um, but I'd like to kind of go back to a bit of the backstory behind what you do. There's a bit like movies, there's always an origin story. There's always a reason that fuels our passion, that fuels our, our calling, if you will. And so, uh, from what I understand, you live in the Richmond, Virginia area, I believe, that, that, that part of the world. So, just talk a bit about kind of your growing up and your family. And you had some challenges growing up, but you know, what was what was life like in your family kind of growing up? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. I really am very honored to be here today with you guys. This is going to be so much fun. My childhood was very interesting. Um, I was like most kids, you know, had parents married, so forth. We lived in a suburbial house and everything from the outside world looked to be fairly normal. And unfortunately, my parents started to disconnect from one another, probably around the age of six or seven. And at age seven was a pivotal point in my life. And one of those memories that will stay with me forever. And that memory was being on my driveway of my parents' driveway in a hot summer afternoon in St. Louis, Missouri, which is very hot and humid in the Midwest, playing jacks. Do you remember that game, jacks? 
I don't know if we're all old yeah. enough to remember yeah. Jax. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. So I'm playing Jax and I'm looking up and down the street thinking there's no one to play with. If this all there is to life, then I really don't want to be here. I just don't see the point of living when there's not really any exciting things happening. And then my next thought was, I'm seven. I should probably not be having these weird thoughts. Like who thinks like that? You know, I I knew right away that it was a very peculiar question to be asking of someone so young. And that really was the start of what I call my gray area living life really started at that point. And just for fun, that was also the same year that I declared to my mom that I would become a cigarette smoker. And so I became one. I took a cigarette from her best friend Gladys's house when she was hanging out with Gladys, having some coffee. Gladys smoked cool cigarettes. Hey, I wanted to be cool. So I thought I'd take one. And then moving on through the teenage years were really, really difficult. They were the years that now my parents are divorced. I'm moving around quite a bit. I went to 12 different schools before I hit my second, ninth grade. I was uh, physically and sexually abused by older boys than, than me. It was, it was a very difficult time in my life. I moved, you know, just always trying to fit in, always being the new kid, always just, you know, trying to make friends with people. I was beaten so badly in eighth grade. My parents didn't even recognize me. It was a rough several years. And then fast forward, I meet my husband when I'm in college and he was the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. And I wanted to break up with him for that reason. I thought he is just too nice. What is wrong with him? I was used to being with the wrong crowd, so to speak. And I called up his house. This is before cell phones. Of course, this is 1980 something. And I called up his house and his mom said, oh, he's not here, but I'm going to tell him that you called. And by the way, Carrie, I want to let you know that my son loves you so much. I hope you never break his heart. And I thought, well, dang, there goes that. I mean, I was literally calling to break up with a guy. And I'm like, great. She just, she just took that away from me. But I credit her uh, because here we are 33 years later, still together and very happy. But, you know, this is, this is all part of the gray area of, of living is what I'm talking about is like, you, you aren't expecting anything wonderful to happen. It's always this doom and gloom living in this, in this fake world of pretend and being fine. And that was what I was trying to do. I was trying so hard to fit in and just go with the flow and say my life was fine. And it really wasn't. That was, that was a big piece of it. And God flows in and out of this whole story, but we can get to it. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, you obviously had a very tough upbringing. There was no you know, most folks need an anchor. I think for some of us, for you and I and Gary, it's our faith, our faith in Christ. I mean, you need an anchor in something, but it sounds like growing up, you had parents that just drifted apart. You think you went, what, 12 different schools. I'm assuming you were living with your mom through most of your childhood. Was it pretty much, you know, visiting you, living with your mom, visiting your dad on every other weekend or, you know, whatever the the deal is something yeah. like that. One one year was all with my father, my eighth grade year. My mom had moved back to her home state of Massachusetts. This is all in Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. And when she left, you know, that was a difficult time too. I mean, you know, it's funny. I look, I look at the situation now with s- such different eyes, you know, through a different lens. 
I see my parents as, as human beings, not my actual parents. I see them as John and Nancy. <laughs> I don't see them as, you know, Carrie's mom and dad, which is extremely helpful, by the way. Because if if I didn't see them that way, you know, I kept I harbored a lot of resentment during that time. And now I look at them like, wow, they went, they went through a lot and they did their best. And they didn't realize how much pain I was in. And I think this is a message. This is one of my bigger messages that I like to talk about is that we don't realize how much of our psyche and our belief system is formed at such an early age, before the age of seven. Neurologically, we uh, absorb so much information into our minds and we can take that information. We can take an incident as simple and as innocent as listening to your parents argue about money and internalizing that as money causes problems in relationships and is a disruptor with relationships. And then later on in life, you have problems with a, re- a partner regarding money. This is how our brain works. And so I didn't know any of this. I don't, my parents didn't know. I don't think most people don't understand how our brains work, especially as we're children and we absorb all this information. So I think that was part of it. And part of my healing process now, looking back, and God was never part of our everyday life. And at seven, going back to that magical age, I remember very clearly having a conversation with my sister who is six years older than me. And she, at that time, was pretty much an atheist. And I said to her, what do you mean? How could you not believe in God? And she was like, nope, don't believe in it. And I thought, well, that's weird. But I always had this innate ability, I guess, or this innate um, sense would be a better description that there was something bigger than me, but I didn't know what it was. And ironically, it is because of my sister that I am a Christian today. She went Mm -hmm. off to college, again, six years older than me. And when she came back, she was a born again Christian. Now, this is a girl who dealt with a lot of stuff as well. I mean, she, she was older than me, but she was going through the same thing I was, you know, parents getting divorced, so forth. She was involved with someone that wasn't a very good person and also had a lot of drug use, which at that point, you know, I was using drugs that also at an early age, seventh and eighth grade. And she came back this born again Christian. And I thought, who are you? Like, what does that mean to be a born again Christian? I had no idea what that meant. And she said, you know, I really want you to go to church with me. And I said, okay. So we went to a church and I ended up just soaking in. I didn't realize at the time how much I needed it, how much I needed something outside of myself, something bigger. And her particular church did an altar call at the end of the service. And she looked at me and I'm sobbing. I mean, just sobbing tears. This was eighth grade, by the way. This was the same year that I was beaten so badly that my parents didn't know me. I lived with my father this year. And we went up to the altar and I accepted Christ as my savior. And I am just bawling, bawling, bawling. And I realized at that moment, this is what I've been seeking my whole little, you know, 12 year old self or 13 year old self at this point. And I accepted him into my life. But like most kids that age, you know, it was in the back pocket and I didn't live a quote unquote Christian life, but it's okay. 
because the seed was planted. So I think it's it's that deeper connection of that faith that has carried me through this whole time. And I believe 100% Warwick and Gary, 100% that, that I was meant to go through all the things I went through. And there's so much more that we haven't even, you know, I haven't said yet. So much more that I believe I was meant to go through all of that for me to be in this place today. Otherwise, I wouldn't have such a passion for my life and a calling on my life. And I truly believe God has called me to do this work today, but it all had to be part of the plan. It had to be the setup. It's like the, it's like the greatest setup you can ever imagine in history, right? (laughs) Is your own life looking back as opposed to it happened to me. It happened for me. So you carry on with life and you obviously somebody that's intelligent, successful, you end up being a I think a, a a dealer and a you know Porsche dealership, you know, you're earning, I don't know, six figures. Life is going well from the outside. You know, you married and you know, family I imagine, and you know, life is life is awesome. But yet there was this this other side that, you know, you were you were drinking uh what characterize it because you view it a little differently than some, you know, because some people think it's all black and white. It's all, hey, everything's honky dory, or you're a quote unquote an alcoholic, but yet, hence gray tonic. Your perspective is a bit different, but from the outside, you know, you have a wonderful husband. Life seems like it's been redeemed. In theory, life's pretty good, but yet, I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, drinking probably went back a lot of years too, like some of the other things, I'm guessing. So talk oh, a bit yeah. about that. There's a flip side beneath the surface that people maybe aren't quite realizing about about Carrie. Oh, yes. Well, the drinking actually started in my 30s. Um, I'm now 55 to give some context of, of how long this was going on. So in my 30s, I was managing, uh, I was a food and beverage manager at a country club. I was in the restaurant business for a lot of years. You know, anybody who works in the restaurant business knows that, you know, you, you drink after work. That's just what you do. Well, now, you know, I'm the manager, so can't drink at work anymore, but I was the wine buyer for the, for the restaurant. So I became very well educated on high-end wines and became very much of a wine connoisseur, wine snob, whatever you want to say. And Rob was starting to notice that, you know, I'm now drinking a glass or two in the evenings at home when I wasn't working. And he, he, he raised an eyebrow to that. And he said, you know, I'm noticing that you're now drinking at home. Like, what's up with that? And I, and I'm like, what, what, like, what's the big deal? Like everyone does it. I mean, they do it in Europe. Like everyone drinks every night in Europe. So what's the problem, you know, trying to make light of it. And he was hyper, super focused on it because his mom was an alcoholic and unfortunately abused uh, some pain medication as well. And so he was very well versed on what addiction looks like. So he was aware that, uh uh-oh, my wife is now having a couple of drinks and it's becoming habitual. Well, right around that same time, we moved to Richmond, Virginia from Pennsylvania. And that move was very stressful, as you can imagine, you know, finding a new job, which wasn't a problem at that point. Fast forward, I'm in the medical field now at this point. And I knew getting a job down here would in Richmond would not be a problem. Matter of fact, I had quite a few selections to choose from uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And, but it was very stressful. I moved my kids out of school, you know, the whole new community, trying to make new friends, trying to build a house, the whole nine yards, that the drinking became even more so. So instead of that one or two glasses, now we're talking, you know, a consistent two to three 
mostly every night, not all the time, but a lot. And then, you know, and then I would play the game with myself of like, oh, I'm going to take like a month or two off of drinking and would do it successfully. And then, you know, then I would barter with myself. Like I'm, I'm only going to drink, you know, uh, on the weekends, not during the week. And then the weekends turned into be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, instead of just Friday and Saturday. Like there was always these games I was playing with myself. And I started to question relation, my relationship with alcohol. Like, why am I drinking? So those eternal voices started happening probably in 2014, still in the medical field. You know, this went on, I really was in what we call the contemplation stage of knowing that I should probably do something about it, probably take this a little bit more seriously than what I am, but wasn't quite ready to make that shift. So a lot of people that are questioning anything, it doesn't have to be drinking, anything in their life will stay in this contemplation stage until they almost feel like they're forced to make a change. Because if there's no rock bottom or there's no repercussions that's happening or there's nothing that is forcing them to quit or make a change, well, then why should they, right? It's it's like accepting what is, accepting like, well, nothing's happened, so I'll just keep doing it. And this was a little bit of my attitude. I want to just dwell on this a bit because we all come from different paradigms. Uh, I mean, I personally don't drink, but not because of religious reasons. I just don't like the taste and it dulls my senses. And, you know, I don't agree with it. But, you know, my wife does, you know, just at dinner. In fact, uh, two out of my kids are all adults. So, you know, having a glass of wine at dinner is what we do other than me. And that's all good. I grew up with parents that would drink wine. My dad especially was exceptionally moderate in uh, his habits. He would drink a glass and a half of wine at dinner and a glass and a half at lunch and never, ever anymore. Like it was like a metronome. It was like, and that was it. He would never drink spirits or, you know, gin, vodka, anything. So, you know, for a lot of folks that say, well, there's nothing wrong with having a glass or two of wine at dinner. You know, many in Europe, in Australia probably has, I think it has the highest wine consumption per capita of almost any country in the world. And, you know, and so there are people that drink wine and enjoy it just as, you know, the whole wine pairing thing and, you know, whites with whatever it is and reds. But yet it sounds like you want this massively heavy drinker, you know, downing I don't know, glasses or bottles of vodka. It doesn't, to the outside observer, it sounds, well, what's so wrong with what Carrie's doing? I mean, a couple of glasses of wine, I realize your husband's sensitivity given his family background, but, but yet I'm sensing you're probably, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine per se, but what I think what you're getting to, which I think listeners really need to understand, it, it's the why. So for those mm-hmm. who drink wine because they feel like it makes the food taste nicer, great. And everything's hunky-dory in life, but it sounds like with you, there was a reason you were drinking, and the reason, from your perspective, wasn't good. Is is that kind of the the thrust of it, if you will? Because it, it doesn't. To most observers, are saying, "I don't get what the problem is." A couple of glasses of wine at dinner. What, what what's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, and that's a very good perspective, by the way, and and you are correct. So a lot of this is about the why. We have to look at the why. And for me, it wasn't a celebratory type, you know, uh, experience. It was more like, man, I had a really crappy day at work. I'm coming home, and I need to do something about this. And it was, I really became habitualized to my day 
In other words, you know, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you go to the bathroom, you drink some water, whatever. It was like, I come home from work, I pour a glass of wine, I make dinner, I have another glass with dinner. And then sometimes I'd have another glass. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I'd be like, well, what the heck? There's only a half a glass left in the bottle. Might as well just drink that too. So when I started realizing that I wasn't just using wine because I enjoyed the taste of it and wanted a glass with dinner, that it became a crutch for me. It became a way for me to cope with a job that I strongly disliked. It was a way for me to cope. More importantly, this is really what it comes down to. The crux of of my drinking was that I didn't like myself. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I had zero self-confidence. I, you know, yes, had a very strong faith, still have a strong faith, but it wasn't enough. I couldn't see what God sees. All I saw Mm. was this broken person. And, And because I carried, you know, this is a really big piece of the puzzle here is that for so many years since seven, all the things that happened to me as a child was exactly that in my head. It happened to me. I was a victim. I wore that victim badge so proudly, like you don't know what I went through. And people that have gone through trauma will use that as a way to justify a lot of the self-sabotaging behaviors, not consciously, by the way, all this is done unconsciously. Our brain is so powerful and has the ability to really, really, you know, find ways to remind us, unfortunately, it's it's PTSD, to be honest with you. A lot of it's PTSD and trauma that's so deeply rooted. So every time we have an experience that pops back up, so unless it's healed, unless it's an area that we've healed, we're going to keep experiencing this. Well, I didn't have any knowledge of self-development at this point in my life, just, you know, six years ago, I'm talking about. So when I was, you know, if I had a bad day and somebody didn't say something the way I took that as, well, this is why this happens to me. It happens all the time to me. And I'm just a rebel. I'm a rebel. I'm a bad kid. I had all the labels. I had all the self-negative talk. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the troublemaker. I'm the one who always is expected to be in trouble. I'm the one who never quite makes the Dean's list. I'm, I'm always, I'm always the, the short end of the stick, but I always seem to skate by somehow. Like that was my mentality on everything in my, even in my professional life, even when I was successful in in my jobs and my careers, I had, you know, this is my seventh career. I I was successful in all of them, but it was more or less like, I can't believe I made it this far, like lucky me. And that's really what I saw of it. So I had all this internalization uh, going on in my head, this back and forth inner chatter that was running a lot of my decision-making which neurologically is, is how it works. Our feelings really are, are coming from our thoughts. And be, because we feel the feelings, we don't think about our thought thinking, we feel the feelings and those feelings drive us into an action or inaction that produce a result that reinforces the original belief that the thoughts are stemming from. So this is the circular thinking loop that we do in our minds. Absolutely. I want to shift to Gray Tonic, but before we do, I think I want, want listeners to really hear what Carrie is, is saying. It felt, you know, I'm reminded of that image of uh, baptism, which is, um, you know, an outward uh, manifestation of an inner transformation. That's, you know, what you always hear. And, you know, I've 
elder at a non-denominational church in Annapolis, Maryland. So, you know, we do baptism and so I'm familiar with all that. But it sounds a bit similar in that this was an outward manifestation of inward hurt, of inward trauma, of inward unresolved. I mean, you don't have to completely 100% heal from trauma. I certainly, there are scars and echoes, but it's one thing for it to be a scar and echo. This more felt like, I don't know, ghosts or uh, whatever analogy you want to use that was unresolved and was still affecting you and your decisions and and how you viewed yourself. So does that make sense? It just felt like that's what was going on. And I guess if that's true, the question is, you made a big, a big pivot around about that time. I think you were working at a Porsche dealer and life felt a bit Blah, you know, blah, or as you put it, you know, meh, which I guess what M-E-H, I'm not quite sure how you spell that, but something like that. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But it felt like there was a pivot and there was a shift from I'm being, you know, Carrie is being governed by the ghosts and all the trauma and the damage that was done to you and, the, you know, uh, other things that went on. But somehow there was a pivot that, uh, that shifted things below the surface that were no longer going to govern and drive you. You were, you know, going to somehow you got out of, of the, of that, uh, that prison that you were in of, you know, being a victim, the bad girl, you know, I always screw up all of those negative self-talk. Somehow you got out of that. So tell us about how you got out of that prison and how all those negative thoughts beneath the surface, which was driving the drinking from your perspective. How did you make that shift? Because, you know, many don't. Oh yeah, such a good question. Well, after I decided that alcohol needs to exit my life, I went the traditional route of figuring that out through Alcoholics Anonymous. Great program. I learned a lot. It was it was really an awesome place to go. However, because I did not identify as being an alcoholic and I didn't feel like it was the right fit for me, I left the program after about four months. And I did all the things, you know, the big book, the 12 steps to sponsor, all those. And it, it did provide me some insight, which was good. It was, it, was the, it was the seed I needed to keep me going, but I realized it wasn't my long-term game. And again, I, I had a problem with saying, hi, I'm Carrie and I'm an alcoholic. It really was a label that I was not willing to accept and nor did I feel like I was. So I left the program and I worked with a coach that I used to work with as he's a physician that we worked together in a medical practice. And I really trusted him. And I was the only female that he had worked with at that point. He only coached men. And he said, Carrie, I don't work with women. I'm like, no, you need to work with me. I need to have you as my coach. And during those three months that I worked with him, uh, they were not enjoyable, to be honest with you. It was hard work. He was tough on me. And it was exactly what I needed. And this is where the big pivotal point comes in. He said to me on one conversation, Carrie, I think one day you're going to start your own business. I think you have everything it takes to be an amazing coach. And I think you're going to share your story with the world. And then I busted out laughing and said, you are smoking something serious over there, dude, because that's never going to happen. And I was serious. I'm like, you, okay, first of all, I'm not leaving my job because I love my job at Porsche. By this point, I'm at the Porsche dealership and I was making great money. And I thought, well, coaching, okay, I might be able to think about that as a possibility because I was already coaching some people that left AA when I did and were coming to me for advice and, and solace and so forth. 
And then to share my story with the world, oh, that's where I drew the line. I'm like, there's no way. I was so private. I mean, I had everyone fooled that my life was so perfect. There was no way I was about to go be vulnerable and, you know, have anybody see the real Carrie. So that was not going to happen. Well, (laughs) God had other plans. And as I like to say, God's plan is the plan and my plan is just a plan. And I believe that this coach was given the ability through God to plant these seeds for me. So it was the sum, it was about a year later. So I'm in church and they're talking about starting a small group. And I said to my husband, I'm going to start a small group. And he goes, okay, great. What are you going to start it on? I said, well, I'm going to do something around drinking. Now, right around this time, I heard the term gray area drinking via a Hmm. guest that was on a podcast. And when I was walking my dog and I heard this podcast interview, I literally like stopped in the middle of the street. It was a a warm summer morning, like 7.30 in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I was. I never identified as an alcoholic. I was a gray area drinker. So I came home It was like the fire was just burning inside me. I came home and I researched everything I could on gray area drinking and there wasn't a lot out there. And I thought, if I can share what gray area drinking is with more people, I'll get them to raise their hand before they get into a deeper addiction. And then this could be my contribution. And then, okay, sure. Then I can share my story. Because by this point, I had a couple of years, I was two years alcohol-free at this point. And I thought, okay, well, at this point, I don't care who knows I drank too much at one point, like whatever. And right around that same time, I said about the church, the church poo-pooed the idea. They actually had a recovery group at the church and they didn't want to have like a competing small group. It's a small group, right? I'm like, are we not here to spread the love love of Christ? Like I'm I'm confused. (laughs) So I I was really upset over it. And I left the church over it. My girlfriend called me later that day and she said, what's going on? I told her, she said, Carrie, why are you allowing the church to dictate what you're going to do? You already have so many people that are following you that you're helping. Girl, you need to start something on your own. And I said, yeah, I'll show that church. I don't need them. (laughs) And that was exactly how this business got started. I was on fire. I was on fire so much that I could not sleep for a week straight. There was so many ideas flowing through my head you know, you, you know, when you first become an entrepreneur, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to conquer the whole entire world. You know, I'm thinking like all this crazy stuff. I bought 14 domain names, like within a week <laughs> and I just went crazy, but I settled That's on great. great tonic because I love the word tonic by definition. It means medicinal drink, of course, but it also means invigorate, strengthener, boost, pick me up all these beautiful words. And I thought, yeah, I'm could be the tonic to someone who's in the gray. And that's literally how the name Great Tonic came to be. And, and that was three and a half years ago. And here we are. So that was that was a big, I credit my coach. I credit God for the church saying no to me. By the way, I'm back at that same church. <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that that happened. I'm glad it happened exactly the way it needed to. And then I just really delved deeply, even more so into the self-development world became a certified life coach, uh, certified and almost certified in NLP. I'm almost done with that uh-huh. trauma training, motivational interviewing, all, all this certification and, you know, every possible chance I get, I'm, I'm learning something constantly. So it's just been my world that I live in right now. Yes. 
uh, one of the things I love about uh, your story, Carrie, is that from this idea of gray area drinking, you've expanded it to gray area living. And your assistance that you offer, your insight that you offer, your hope that you offer to clients and people is not just in the area of drinking, but maybe you're handcuffed to a job that is not rewarding. Maybe you're in a relationship that is not mutually satisfying. Um, That gray area concept and the idea of tonic coming to make it better, to, to, to soothe it, to propel you forward, that applies not just to drinking, but to other things. I imagine, and and especially for a series that we're calling Second Act Significance, um, this this new act in your life, there's enormous significance to you, I imagine, in um, not just focusing on drinking while that is where it started and that's important to you, but these other very fulsome areas of life. There's got to be great, great satisfaction for you in that. Oh, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of my clients, when they come to me, it is not because of drinking. That might be one of the things that, you know, they're doing to deal with their stress and their unhappiness and their deep rooted trauma that they might have in their life. But, you know, they might be saying, Hey, Carrie, I really need help with, you know, all the stress I'm under at work or my wife and I aren't getting along or my spouse, or I'm really having a hard time with in my relationships, whatever it is, we have gray areas in so many, so many places. Like you said, it could be that, like you said, handcuffed to a job or just being in an unhappy marriage. And, and honestly, that's part of my story too, is three years ago, I found myself after 30 years of marriage telling my husband, I don't know if I want to remain married. I was really falling out of love with him. And there was, there was a lot of things that were happening with me during my process of self-development that brought me to that place of, I don't know if I want to strap in for another 30 years. And so we worked really hard through that time. And I, again, believe that I was meant to go through that period with Rob because to be in where I'm at now, which is I can help couples with their gray areas. Now I, I coach the individual, but we bring the partner in for a couple sessions And I have a process to do that that really makes a significant difference in the life because now they can see each other in a way that they've not seen before. That's a beautiful thing about a coach. A coach is able to look into the future and see the blind spots and see things that the client cannot see exactly what my my first coach did for me. He saw the potential in me. He saw things that would fulfill me and that would make me uh, feel like there was a purpose and a, and a passion for my life that I have never felt starting at age seven. Why am I here? Because if this is all there is to life, I don't see the purpose. I can honestly say now that this is the reason why I'm here is to do this work 110%. Yeah. No, what you said is so profound. And um, yeah, thanks, Carrie, for just reminding us that there is a broader picture. I mean, sometimes life can feel very gray, you know, like it's overcast, all the buildings are gray, life is gray. It's almost like, you know, the Wizard of Oz before they turn the color on. It's just life is just boring. It's black and white. It's not all the colors of the rainbow. And um, for many people, they're stuck in this dead-end job. You know, if anybody wants to think of what is gray living really like, there's a film with Tom Hanks that didn't really go anywhere, but it's called Joe versus the Volcano. 
and that opening scene where he sort of he goes through the mud into this the bowels of this dark building has this itty bitty little colorful lamp and the whole thing is just like boring gray awful it's like he's going to prison every day i mean it's the most vivid illustration i've ever seen of what a gray life uh, is in a sense and so for many people it may not be drinking but they might be unhappy in their marriage they might hate their job hate their life hate themselves you know all of the above and so how do you get out of that gray living to a uh, you know where you love your spouse um you know you love who they are you you love yourself in in, in the best god honoring sense of that word you love what you do you feel if you're a person of faith you feel honestly that this is a god-given calling or if you're not a universe calling so it sounds like you're trying to be who your coach was you're an advocate for people to find their calling to get out of the gray into just a, a, a colorful life where they love themselves and love others i mean is that like a a reasonable yeah. summary of of what you that's a great what, what summary you do. <laughs> so, that, that's a that is a phenomenal summary and, and and you know what i i have to say there is a client that would be an awesome guest for your show because he is the epitome of just that and and how he's touching millions of lives at this point with with what the work that he does and and it's and it's just incredible to see what God can do in, in someone's life, you know? And when you think about who was actually called for greatness in the Bible, it wasn't the most, you know, honoring upstanding citizens that were called. It was the lowly, uh, un, un, uh, deservable or recognizable people that God was calling up to the stand to say, you know what, you're the chosen one. I mean, just, just look at, you know, the story of Saul, you know, now Paul, I mean, you can't make this up, right? God purposely picks people that you would not expect. I mean, even Jesus, the way that he came into the world, you know, it's just, it's an incredible story. We don't, we don't always think it's going to look like that, but that's exactly how it is. And, and I am, I'm actually very honored to, to do what I do. I have to pinch myself like, wow. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, you know, God uses the broken for his own uh, purposes, absolutely. So, talk a bit about gray tonic, and I know this question: the drink. You know, people come to you and they say, "Carrie, you know, maybe I drink a bit too much, but you know, it's not like, you know, uh, massive. But yeah, I don't do it for the right reasons. I hate my job, hate my life, hate my marriage, hate myself." As as their coach, what are some of the things you do to try and turn the I don't know the the, the Titanic away from hitting the iceberg? kind of deal because it's either they're on the iceberg they're about to hit it uh there's always it's better but there's often worse you know mm -hmm. uh if you keep going oh, yeah. the direction you're going so how do you how what are the things you do as their advocate to help turn the ship around so that it's not like gonna crash in the iceberg and go down oh yeah well, it depends if I'm working with them one-on-one -on -one or in a group, because a group is is set up a little bit differently, and that's really surrounded towards drinking and some behaviorals. But with the group and and with my one-on-ones, the first thing is, you know, let's hold up the mirror and let's really start to dive deep as to why you're doing this. You know, there has to be more than just an interest. It has to be knowing what that why is, because your why is your anchor. Your why is the the fuel that's going to keep you going, but it's also it has to be of deep value. It's like 
It just has to be your grounding force. It has to be that shining North star that is just keeping you moving forward. And without a strong foundational why on how and why you want to change your life and the differences, it's not going to be very successful. And the next part of that is really understanding that there's a difference between goals and intentions. And I focus a lot on intentions. I don't actually like goals. I think goals are great to check a box and they're future based and yippee yay, we can cross the box off and feel like we're, we've accomplished something. But intentions are the daily fuel and the motivation that we need. And those little micro wins provide the daily effort that is needed And part of my program is called Everyday Effort Equals Expansion because what we're trying to do is to expand into the next best version of ourself. And one of the guys that I follow that I just love, 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 his name is Ed Milet. On one of uh, his interviews, he stated that the day he dies and he's standing with God, he wants to be looking at a reflection of what he says would be his twin brother, uh, the, the man that he was had the potential to live up to. And he wants to have that reflection back that he has lived up to his God-given potential and that he was used in every possible way that he was every year rising to a new level and the best that he could be both self-development wise, but also spiritually. What more can we do for God's kingdom? What more can we provide? And I just love that. And for me, that's what I live by. And with my clients, Yes, I am a Christian. Uh, Yes, I very much coach on godly principles, but I'm not the one who's beating them down to say, hey, you need to believe in God. Instead, what I do is come at it through the back door, (laughs) just like gray area drinking is a back door way in to say, or gray area anything is to say, I might want to explore this a little bit further. It's an invitation. So, a lot of it, my job as a coach is to show the insights and the possibilities. And I like to describe myself as the bumpers in a bowling alley. Like if you go to bowl, Mm -hmm. I'm those bumpers that are just bumping you back into the middle of the lane so you can hit the targets and fully expand and hit all of those pins where you can fully expand into the best version of yourself, which sounds so cliche, but it's true. Because if you would have told me just six years ago, that I would be in this position right here, right now, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy, but yet here we are. So God's God's plan is really the plan. And I think if we can relax and rest into that and surrender to that is when we allow things to happen. So a lot of it is, is, is a self-reflection. And of course I do that through some other modalities a whole lot more, but that's the high level version. <laughs> that sound you heard listener, is the sound of the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign indicating that we have begun, but it's going to be a slow descent to landing because we have some more ground to cover in this fascinating conversation with Carrie. Uh, there's something about what you've been saying, Carrie, that just I can't get out of my my head. You talk about, and this gives me the opportunity to say something Warwick says pretty much every episode when he says, listeners will be familiar with, and then he tells a bit of his story. Listeners will be familiar with a bit of my story in that I have an alcoholic background myself. Um, and, and, and I did go to AA for a longer period of time th- than you, but I sort of uh, came to the place where that while I love the program, that didn't really do it for me, didn't didn't work entirely for me. 
But the idea of why I drank to change the way I felt, the way that you talked about it to change the way you felt, I can see in what you're doing with clients now, you're dealing with, you're helping them change how they feel, but in much more constructive ways. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm the pattern disruptor, but while we're making the patterns and into new patterns, we can literally change the way that we think by creating new neural pathways and, and disrupting all that. But it's also building the confidence that they need. My whole job is to build that self-love and purpose and passion inside of those clients. And when I can do that, and I know I've become successful doing that is when, you know, I know, I know my work is, is, is been well received. And that's really the goal of what I do is, is to help them see what's possible for them. Well, and, and that leads to this, this last question. I promise I'm going to throw it back to your work after this last question and um, something I'm going to have uh, Carrie do. The last question then becomes, the series is all about, it's called Second Act Significance. And it's all about how what we were doing before might have been great in its own way. Maybe it wasn't. But what, what we're doing now brings us much more satisfaction and significance. Is that true for you? How would you describe what you were doing before with the jobs you had, the, the Porsche dealership most recently before this, are you living a more significant life, a more satisfactory life now? And why is that? Oh, 100% more satisfactory because I'm not numb to what's going around me. I'm no longer hiding behind a mask. I'm no longer living in this guilt and shame of something that I did that was wrong or that I didn't measure up those voices of I'm not enough, they're diminished. Are they gone completely? No, that is something that I think all of us as humans will occasionally have to, to look at and, and question and say, what is the truth here? And so for me, when I, when I have those voices come into my head, I have to ask, is that what I really believe? Do I know that that is really the truth? Or is there something else that could be true? And when I realized that we have internal stories in, in our mind that create these feelings for us, that's what gets us into trouble. So for me, it's, it's always circling back to what is most important, understanding my why, understanding the reason why I was chosen for this. And this is not about me. This is truly to bring hope and joy and peace to others that I'm doing God's work that he is meant for me to do. And so when I take myself out of the equation and I make it about the person, then I know my direction is correct. And then when I take my eyes off of myself, that allows me to show up more vulnerably. And I think that has been a gift too. I mean, like I said, there was no way I'd share my story publicly. And yet now <laughs> there's pretty much I, I won't share. <laughs> I would be remiss at this point if I did not give you the chance, Carrie, to tell listeners how they can find you online and read your blog and, uh, you know, learn more about your services. How can they do that? Uh, the best way, thank you for asking. The best way is through my website, Gray Tonic. And by the way, Gray in the U.S. <laughs> it's spelled G-R-A-Y. I think yes. we're the only country... This spells gray with an A, uh, but it is A-Y, gray tonic. And then if anybody is interested and wondering, you know, am I in a gray area drinker? There is a quiz on my main website, gray tonic, but I have another website dedicated to gray area drinking, and that is grayareadrinking.com. Again, G-R-A-Y. So 
either website, greatyourdrinking.com or great tonic is a great way to learn more about me, my services and the things that I offer and uh, more about the group program. If that's something that is of interest, cause it's, it's an awesome group. All right, Warwick, I'm done. Take us <laughs> in. Oh, good. Oh, good. You know, I love what you're saying, um, Carrie. You know, one of the things you said to us in advance was the hardest lessons in life are in the storm. You say, you know, um, you know, sometimes you basically, the key is to know you have to go through and not around, that there's almost a, a, an open, an unopened gift. There's a blessing in the storm. And I, I love what you say in that because I can relate uh I don't know if it's true for everybody. It might be, but sometimes one of the keys to being able to deal with with the dark in the past, the damage that has been done to us, the mistakes that we've made is, and this is not an original thought, but it is to use our pain for a purpose. When you're using your pain in service of others, when you're sharing your story and others are saying, you know, Carrie, you're speaking to my soul. That was me. I feel like a little bit better today. Maybe everything isn't solved, but I, I have hope. I honestly believe the first time in my life I'll get out of the gray, I'll see some color in my life. You know, I think I have hope for my marriage, I have hope for my life. It feels like at that point, you know, boy, what I went through was awful, but I can see God's plan, I can see God's hand. And certainly in my life, it's very different, but similar in the way that I talk a lot about what I went through, you know, on, on my own podcast, but other people's podcasts, the losing 150-year family business, disappointing myself. I felt like I let God down because I was founded by a believer. I mean, I go into all this detail and yeah, it does get easier. I talk about it a lot, as you talk about it a lot. So just talk about for listeners, there sometimes can be beauty amidst the pain and by sharing it, that's also a path back to to healing. And that kind of leads to maybe that one last question you said, what would you ask us is, uh, and that question you say is, um, uh, with all that you've gone through, would you, would you change anything if given the chance? So I, th- I have a feeling those two thoughts are connected, if you will, like there was some purpose by what you went through and it's able to, it's, it provided you some healing, I'm sure. So talk about that and the, you know, would you change things if you could, if those, if you, yeah. You know what? I, I feel sorry for that little girl that she, what she had to go through. I really do. Um, I almost look at my younger self as a separated person from me. Like, you know, I'm not that, I'm not that person. I look at it through a different lens now. And because I'm able to do that, would I choose to go through it again? And the answer is only, only knowing what I know now and the impact that I get to provide is yes, I would. I, I almost think of, um, you know, anytime anybody goes through something really hard, if it's for the greater good of God's kingdom, then how could you possibly say no, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't experience it again, as painful as it was. So I think it's, it's taking the mess and listen, we, I think every listener could attest to this, that we all have something in our life. We all have some sort of, whether it's little T trauma or big T trauma, we have some sort of trauma or experience that has helped shaped us. And instead of looking back on it saying, wow, that happened to me, that happened for me, because now you can see that gift, the blessing 
and you know, there's there's really four types of blessings of of failures, as I call them, and it's you know, it's a learning, a setup, a redirection, and when we can look at that, we can find the purpose behind it. Then it makes sense, and then we're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it now. So yes, the answer is yes. So I have been in the communications business long enough and co-host of this podcast long enough to know when the last word's been spoken on a subject and Carrie just spoke it. There's something, listener, I want to sort of present to you. If, if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the content, if you enjoy the things that we talk about here, these are all things that came out of Warwick's experiences. And there are more ways to experience Warwick's experiences. A couple of things come to mind. One, you can purchase his book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, go to our website, crucibleleadership.com. That Wall Street Journal bestseller book is available there. You also can book Warwick to speak at an event that you're holding or having. Um, You can also find how to book Warwick as a speaker for your event on our website, crucibleleadership.com. So until the next time we're together, listeners, Remember that your crucible experiences, we know, we've talked about it here. We all know how hard those things are. Carrie did a a meaningful and moving job in talking about her own crucibles and how painful they were. But she also talked in great depth with great hope about the other truth. And that is if we learn the lessons of them, if we apply them to our lives moving forward, they can be truly blessings. They can be truly things that lead to a life of significance. And in the context of this series, which we've just kicked off, when we pivot away from those things that maybe cause us crucibles and we move into something new, we move into something fresh, we explore what we're calling second act significance, that's where the depth and breadth and height of our lives of significance can truly be found.